It's November 30th, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and, of course, the startup scene. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Rand Ozawa. To kick off today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about Computer Science Education Week, which is coming up next week, and the Worldwide Hour of Code. Then, Blaine Kakashiwaeda will tell us about the upcoming FIRST Robotics Competition. And after that, Nicholas Aldi, CEO of Moby PCS, will give us an update on the local wireless carrier. And then after the break, we'll talk to Matt Lynch and Matt Gonzer, both from UH. And they'll talk about uh, a project called Make the Alawai Awesome. It's a student design challenge. Now, some would say that's a tall order, but we'll explore why the Alawai watershed is important and some ideas for how to protect and improve it. We always welcome your comments and questions as part of that conversation as well. You can contact us by calling in or sending us a tweet after the break. But continuing our geek beat from this morning on Hawaii News Now, we did want to share a little bit more about the upcoming Computer Science Education Week, mm-hmm. which runs next week, and it's a worldwide event. Well, you know, Hour of Code is is part of that uh, CS Education Week, and Hour of Code is happening all across the country. In fact, if you look at the Hour of Code map, I mean, I think uh, there's probably at least a dozen, well, no, actually, there's a couple hundred Schools here actually yes, participate. 200 schools in Hawaii out of 118,000 events around the That's world, right. 180 countries. So this is a big deal. It's only been around since 2013. So to think that it's expanded as much as, as it has is impressive. Of course, there are a lot of big name supporters of it, all the big mm-hmm. tech companies. Um, Hour of Code is really directed at younger students, but anyone can participate. And basically, the objective is to make programming accessible and understandable to every student in the world. And I think it's largely about uh, kind of creating the future jobs or even the future companies, you know, getting them ready to create their own worlds. Well, and I think it's it's just getting the kids exposed to this idea of, of sort of computational thinking, which I think is a great thing. Hour of Code, so you have to see, check that out. The other thing that we wanted to, uh, well, we talked about this morning was the fact that uh, there are other let's say, resources that you can take advantage of if you're interested in moving into this realm of of developer, designer, uh, coder. Right. And one of them is Dev League. In fact, they are celebrating their 100th uh, graduate today. There's going to be a Wetware Wednesday event tonight Mm -hmm. over at Lounge Hawaii. Uh, over near Alamoana, and and Dev League is kind of the featured, and they're they're the boot camp for coders. Right, twelve weeks, uh, five figures, but pretty much worth it if it gives you that next new career in software development. Mm-hmm. They also have Junior Dev League, which works with schools to work with students, and also again, kind of creating the uh, programmers of the future. Yeah, uh, we also talked about ways that you could learn and teach yourself to program. Something I've tried and failed at. So <laughs> first, you need to have the discipline to go ahead and do it. But there's some great sites. There's the Code Academy, which is, I think, my favorite. It's all web-based. It's got achievements and badges, and you just do everything in the browser, and it starts very basic. You know, the Hello World, what is your name kind of app, and then goes into some pretty complex things. Yeah, and then I, you know, I started a, um, a artificial intelligence uh, course uh, on, uh, online with Stanford. Mm. Of course, I got past maybe the first introduction. <laughs> and, you know, it's hard to really maintain an online sort of discipline. So. Yeah, I started a whole study group called iBeginner, if you recall. Yeah. I was like, let's all learn iOS programming together. And after about the seventh or eighth lesson, I think we all just found other things that to distract us with. Well, but, you know, I think that is the future. And, and, you know, if you have the discipline and you have the desire, there are resources out there to take advantage of. Right. So our go- of code again next week. And there are still opportunities for companies. If you are listening and you're an IT company, a development company, a software company, um, you can adopt a school, work with teams 
teachers. If you go to the Hour of Code website, there are resources to begin that process. My company, Hawaii Information Service, adopted a school out in Kaneohe, the Kapunahala Elementary. So we're going to be going there on Monday. We ha- we're going to cram in a, uh, a programming challenge with those third graders um, and teach so them. So you're going to you're going to exhibit your programming prowess, right? Well, not mine. Actually, we're bringing our developers from our company. Uh-huh. Um, I'll probably just be taking pictures and tweeting. But okay. yes, it'll be a lot of fun. All right. Sounds good. Well, of course, continuing our STEM education theme, we want to now welcome Blaine Kashiwaeda, and he's a science teacher over at Kalakaua Middle School, and he's here to tell us about FIRST Robotics Competition. Welcome to the show, Blaine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great. So, you know, we've been covering FIRST Robotics for a while, but there are a number of different kinds of competitions going on. Maybe give us a quick snapshot of what are all the competitions that are out there. That That's correct. So um, under that FIRST uh, umbrella of robotics, we have the uh, FRC, mm-hmm. which is the um, big robots for high school students. We have the mm. FTC, which is the first te- uh, first tech challenge that, that runs from um, middle school to high school. So you got most of your eighth graders and um, most of your high schoolers there. Um, we then have the first Lego League program, which is um, from fourth grade to eighth grade. And then last but not least, we have the first Lego League junior, which is from um, kindergarten to second grade or mm-hmm. third grade. So. And, and you're the president of the sort of like the first robotics organization here in so, Hawaii? So my position is um, president of Hawaii First Robotics. Mm-hmm. Um, we recently merged. Uh, we, we were once uh, Hawaii First Lego League, and uh, we're now Hawaii First Robotics. So we now have three of the programs under our umbrella. So we cover the first Lego League junior. Um, first Lego League and the uh, First Tech Challenge. So all three are under our our watch, I guess you could say. Okay. And then as a, as an organization, what is your primary function? Because a lot of these activities sort of take a, take place in the school, right? Yeah, a lot of them take place in the schools. Um, our main job is to really spread that that awareness of STEM education okay. and uh, to to just get the students out there and, and understand that hey, robotics can be pretty cool. Mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm. so this uh, upcoming event, it's the state championship. Correct. Yes, it's the. Um, Hawaii First Robotics State Championship. Um, and what it, size of robots are we talking about for this particular event? For this one, um, the bigger robots are going to be in the FTC area, mm-hmm. but um, our FLO robots are actually all made of Lego. And then our um, the FLO Junior doesn't really have a robot per se, but uh, they do build structures out of Lego, and that, that kind of gets them tiered to the next level, which is the FLO program, and then the FLO program tiers to the FTC. So so these are yeah. so all three will be on display. Correct. That's oh, correct. Interesting. And we'd really like to thank Hawaiian Electric. Um, they've been a huge sponsor for us for the last how many years. Um, they provide us uh, a lot of resources, so we can't thank them enough. And when you uh, at these championships, uh, what, what would be the challenges for those uh, for the entry level with the structures made of Lego? What is the competition? Um, well, this year, the, the challenge for FLO Junior and FLO has been about animals and how the interaction between humans and animals are. So for the FLO Junior, um, I believe their challenge was to um, identify animals that uh, humans both help and hurt. Mm. And, and um, I guess it's taking a step further up for the FLO program um, where they actually have to get out there, research, uh, talk to experts in the animal field and, um, you know, just come up with some innovative solutions on how we can help animals and how animals have helped us. That's great. You know, the, uh, the different robotics competitions that we've covered, they form teams and they assign different kinds of roles to a lot of the, the team members. Uh, let's say for first Lego League, what are some of the responsibilities for the the kids that are getting involved? What would would be what would be a typical responsibility for 
let's say, you know, the, the, the kids that are involved with that particular team? That, that's a good question to ask. Um, it, it really varies by the coach. The coach is the one who really sets the, the tone of the program. Mm-hmm. Um, I can speak as a former coach. Um, we, we had a, like a captain type of system. So our captain would be the person, the go-to person, should know everything about every part of the, um, the challenge that we have. Um, we have our programmers, our engineers, our we we kind of we kind of borrowed the term from Disney, but Imagineers who mm-hmm. work on the innovative solutions. So um, everybody in that team has a role, and everybody's got to work together. And when they do, it's it's pure magic. Yeah, so. no, it's fun. I, it's love. I love to see the kids actually take these roles because I think some of the underwater robotics they have uh, a financial officer, they have a president that's kind of overseeing like the you know like the first. Um, like the, the, the person that's kind of like a team captain. Mm-hmm. And then they have somebody that's in, uh, in charge of marketing, right? They're the, they're the person that has to go out there and do all the right, outreach right, right, and communication. Right. Correct, correct. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty cool experience. So. And, and certainly the larger robots, I mean, that's, those are the events that I certainly remember. Mm-hmm. And it's the level of energy and enthusiasm. It's just like any other sporting event, but it's technical, it's STEM, it's engineers and, and um, creation in that way, and it's, and it's very exciting. So this event on the 3rd, open to the public? Open to the public, uh, free admission. The doors will open at about 9 o'clock for the general public. Um, the real excitement happens about 12 o'clock. That's when our FLL um, uh, challenge begins. So that's when they get to see the robots in action. All right, very good. Okay, so we will... Get out there, check it out. And Where then, can uh, people find information on these events? Yeah. Ah, HawaiiFirstRobotics.org. Okay. That's our website. We'll put that up on our show notes. Thank you very much. Thanks, Blaine, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Now, Nicholas uh, Aldi is here, and he's from Moby PCS. And, of course, they went through a recent uh, kind of acquisition. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about the history. Now, Moby PCS is is a locally uh, uh, homegrown wireless company, right? And, Correct. And then the company that, that you're with, Telespire, right? Yes, sir. They acquired Moby PCS. Yeah, so let me kind of give you a little sure. background. Um, Moby PCS was formed back in, I believe, in 2003, and it was a facilities-based company, mm-hmm. meaning that they put up towers and had a switch, and they operated their network on a uh, facilities-based network. And customers had access to that but was fairly limited because the coverage didn't fully cover the islands. Mm-hmm. So um, they also had to supply their own devices. And the ecosystem of devices has changed over the years when you had so many different wireless carriers, now you have like four basic large tier one carriers. So back in 2015, Moby approached our company, Telespire, and uh, we supported them to become what we call a mobile virtual network operator or MVNO. So Moby started putting customers on a tier one carrier's LTE network because back then Moby was just 3G. And they they knew they needed to move to 4G and they didn't have the money to really do that. Mm. So effectively, they sold their spectrum out and started building up the wireless program under a virtual network. Mm-hmm. So a Mobi customer today is using a Tier 1 carrier, Verizon network. Using their infrastructure. Their infrastructure. And they're using it no different than a you know Verizon retail customer. Uh, yeah, I, I um, have had a previous life in telecom, and the biggest challenge is infrastructure. And it's so capital intensive that the first one that's going to kind of win the market is the one that actually puts up all the towers or you know gets as much infrastructure laid out 
as quickly as possible. Of course, you got to have some deep pockets, right? So oh. when when you have the nationals and you have the local sort of competing in that same arena, it's it's really challenging. It, it is very challenging. It is it's a billions and billions of dollars are invested every year, and the tier one carriers, you know, Verizon, Sprint, AT and T, and T Mobile, have the scale mm-hmm. of customers mm-hmm. so that. They can take the money and reinvest it and build out their network. So Moby came to us and said, hey, Telspire, we're looking to sell. Are you interested? We'll give you first dibs. And that's what we did. We took a look at Moby. We looked at its history. It's really – there's a lot of loyal customers. And I want to thank all you Moby customers that have stuck with us. And we saw a lot of potential because the local team that's here on the island of Oahu – in uh, Big Island and in on Maui, really are committed to serving the the population, mm. the locals, and I think that's what makes Moby different. Is we're a company that grew up local, that's still locally based here, and really can understand when someone walks in the store and has an issue or problem or wants to buy a new phone, that they can communicate at a level that some of the other guys are not that good at. Well, I, I can definitely I, – I know some Moby PCS customers. I still see them recommended, you know, in Facebook posts and threads. And, you know, I think a lot of people appreciate that kind of local connection. They certainly appreciate uh, or sometimes fight for the underdog, and I, I, that's that's also very appealing and attractive. So I'm glad that there is now this sort of next step or this next phase for the company. But in addition to your mobile carrier services, I would imagine that a company like Telspire can bring in, you know, some other opportunities, some other ways that perhaps – their services could expand. Correct. We, uh, because of our relationship with uh, the way we're structured, we could bring more service to Moby customers because we've got scale behind us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as an example, we're right now testing visual voicemail. Visual voicemail is an application. It's driven by the switch. And, you know, the old Moby really couldn't deliver that, but we can. And we're going to be bringing more products and services to help enhance a Moby customer's uh, lifestyle. You know, if you really look at what's going on in the industry today, people are using more and more data. I mean, they're very data-centric. I think I read a study where the average user is going to be using 20 gigs uh, a month in about three to four years. So we're able to provide a Moby customer with more and more data at affordable prices because, you, you know, you have to deliver value to your customer. So as an MBNO, you have to work a deal with those tier one providers, right? And and obviously the way you're gonna make money is, you know, getting a good price on that purchase, sort of the wholesale bulk purchase, and then reselling it as a retail as a as a Mobi uh subscriber. Uh so is there enough of that differential and, and how do you compete from a feature standpoint when the tier one guys are already capable of doing that as well because they have the switch. We compete because, uh, by law, they have to provide us access. So, you know, legally they have to. Uh, And we also compete because I think we provide a differentiated product. In today's world, a successful MVNO is successful because they provide a niche product. Mm -hmm. If I was to go out there and compete head-to-head with an AT&T, we'd lose all day long. We're not competing against AT&T. We're competing for the local brand, for the local market. I mean, people can pronounce uh, the names of the streets here a lot better than I can. (laughs) I'm learning. Uh, But they can communicate at a level that's different. So our play is a niche play. It's for 
we're targeting the local Hawaii population. We want them. We want our old Mobi customers to come back, check us out. We've got great devices. We've got uh, another example. Uh, we provide financing. The uh, old financing company that was being used was really horrible. And the new guys we got are doing a much better job of getting more people approved for financing so they could have an iPhone 7 or a Galaxy 7 Edge. Not the Note, yeah, not okay. the Edge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to clarify that. Yeah. I want to yeah. clarify that yeah. because, you know, yeah. uh, the, the airlines get a little sensitive about those sure. phones these days. So, you know, we, we provide the, the breadth of our resources to Mobi. Uh, we're, we, I love my team. I have a great team here. Uh, very impressed with their ability to service our customers, mm-hmm. and they're learning new technology because behind the scenes, there's a lot of technology that drives that mobile device. Oh, yeah. And it, if you really think about it, you as a customer, you have one phone. Let's say you have the Apple iPhone 6 or 7. Our te- our folks have to know every phone, mm-hmm. you know, two, three dozen phones. They need to know how they operate, how they work and function. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, again, when you talk about the scale, and of course, because you have the advantage of using an established uh, infrastructure provider, um, one thing that comes to mind is you talk about the local touch and the local stores and the local people, and I think that's great. But if a customer of yours travels to Vegas every every other month or, you know, visits New York, I mean, they shouldn't expect any problems in terms of the availability of service when they travel, correct? Ryan, that's a great question because... The old Moby didn't have that ability because their network was what we call it an island, literally, mm-hmm. no pun intended, mm-hmm. because it was only here on Hawaii. But uh, because we're leveraging the Tier 1 carrier's network, a Moby subscriber today can go to Las Vegas and use their phone no different as if they were in their own home here on Oahu. So you have a roaming, sort of roaming deals through with other carriers that allow them to take it to Vegas and use it there. Yeah, and we use we use the largest uh, LTE carrier in the United States, so yeah. they cover like ninety nine percent of the population. So any a Moby customer going to Seattle or going to Wichita Falls, Texas, or going to um, Burlington, Vermont, will have the same service experience with the same cost. It's not going to cost them any more money. Mm-hmm that they have today here on the island. Well, All right, good. Nicholas. Well, if people want to learn more about uh, your offerings at Moby PCS, where can they go? They could go to our website, mobypcs.com, or visit one of our stores. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Nick, for joining us. Thank you very much, guys. Appreciate it. Of course, we'll take a short break now, and we and when we return, we'll be joined by Matt Lynch and Matt Gonzer. Easy, easy names for us to remember. Matt and Matt. And, of course, we'll talk about the Alawai Design Challenge. How does this challenge aim to make the Alawai awesome? It certainly sounds like a challenge. Of course, we love your thoughts or ideas as part of the conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio. We're monitoring Twitter. You can find us at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. This Saturday on Bridging the Gap, we're keeping the set list as eclectic as possible with the usual journey across the world of sound. We'll hear new music from Bon Iver, Jammerick, and the Avalon Jazz Band. I'm Mr. Nick. Join me this Saturday evening from 6 to 8 for Bridging the Gap here on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Homelessness continued to be one of the galvanizing issues top of mind within the counties and statewide this past year. But where has one more year brought us? I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich, and next time on Town Square, 
We consider the progress on homelessness. Join us Thursday at 5 on Town Square. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Kaiser Permanente and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Matt Lynch and Matt Gonzer. Matt Lynch is the Sustainability Coordinator over at the University of Hawaii. Meanwhile, Matt Gonzer is the Extension Faculty Community Planning and Design, uh, is with that program at the University of Hawaii Sea Grant College program. And, of course, how will students reimagine the Alawai watershed and canal? And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments and questions about that. Number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks so much for having us on the show. Yeah, thanks. Welcome, Matt and Matt. Well, Matt and Matt, you know, um, just to uh, minimize the confusion, we'll just stick to Matt and Matt. But Matt Lynch, (laughs) we will ask you the first question, and that is, who came up with the name Make the Alawai Awesome? Yeah, full credit to UH President David Lassner for coming up with the name. And actually, um, uh, I suppose he would tip his hat to Nainoa Thompson. Mm -hmm. So um, President Lassner was actually a crew member aboard Hokulea Mm -hmm. as she sailed in to New York City and Gantry Plaza um, at the United Nations at World Oceans Day this year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, as they were introduced to the Billion Oyster Challenge that students in um, the New York area are working on to restore the ecology of, of that ecosystem, um, the question was posed, hey, what would it take for us to make the Alawai awesome similar to this? And, and President Lassner really took that idea, that seed that was planted, and ran with it. So oh. in New York, they were looking at a challenged watershed, I suppose, and how they, that could be re- rehabilitated. And I guess the first thought that popped into uh, Dr. Lassner's mind was, we have one. It's called the Alawai? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I think what was most inspirational about that was the way that the students were at the forefront of it. I mean, it's a big, hairy, audacious challenge to solve a big, you know, hairy, convoluted problem. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very good. So, Matt Gonzer, how did Sea Grant get involved with this project? Sure, yeah. Um, so Sea Grant has actually been quite involved in the Alawai watershed, and I'm glad that you made the, the additional recognition that it's the Alawai watershed, and, and we'll talk more about sure. that. The canal is kind of the end of a pipe. Um, but Sea Grant, as a research, outreach, and extension unit of the university, we've been sort of coordinating this this Alawai Watership Partnership mm-hmm. um, since about January of last year, 2015. Um, we've been, again, like I said, providing some of that coordination, and it, it's it's a very large cross-sector um, membership. It's a, it's a voluntary working group at this point, um, but, but very active participation across government, non-government, uh, the university, obviously, and others. Um, so Sea Grant had a lot of this information that we were starting to compile, and it, and we were trying to get that information out. So one really easy way to do it is to just dump it all into a website, and we started developing this and trying to make it kind of this repository for open information because we have the university doing great research, um, but how do we try to centralize some of that specific for the watershed? So we're pulling reports cross-linking everything, you know, ensuring that PDFs are available and all that kind of stuff. So Sea Grant was very excited when uh, President Lasner 
came up with the, as you mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. the title, Make the Alloway Awesome. And, and we said, oh, we have a lot of this information. How can we make sure that <laughs> people can get to it? Um, and how do we uh, ensure that, that the good work that has been started already is part of that? So, so students are engaging in a really real world, mm-hmm. um, on the ground existing situation today. Now, now, now you mentioned the, uh, the timing. Okay, so, so uh, President Lasner was on the Hokulea. This was around, what, the, the early part of 2016, or was that in 2015? No, this, that was uh, World Ocean's Day, what, June 8th or so in 2016. Mm, 2016. Yeah. So what's interesting about the timing is that there was also a resolution that was passed you know, in this past legislative session, which recognized the Alawai Watershed Partnership. Now, that had to have happened sometime in 2050 because somebody's got to have the brainstorm to, you know, come up with the idea of doing a resolution, introduce it, and have it get passed, you know, during the session. Where did that come from? So the resolution was actually passed this past session. Right. So it was April of 2016. Um, But like you mentioned, the legwork to, one, the partnership had to sort of coalesce as, as a voluntary working group, and one way to... Just uh, ensure that we're we're doing some of that education is to talk with elected and government mm-hmm, officials. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started communicating some of the challenges, some of the realities of natural hazards, water quality, ecosystem services on, in the upper reaches of the watershed, and say, "Hey, the legislature, we have this large cohort that really wants to work on this. A resolution would provide us a lot of." Um, uh, Support, mm-hmm. you know, it's not financial support mm-hmm. at this time, but it's the recognition that there is this really dedicated group of organizations and individuals interested in improving up and down the watershed. So the resolution was introduced, and we worked with um, particular legislators to ensure that it was um, agreed upon in both houses, uh, and it passed. Or I guess resolutions are adopted. Yeah, adopted. Right. right. Yeah. So if I, if I might chime in. Um, there's no one entity or organization that is capable of solving the challenges sure. of the ally, right? I mean, it cuts across public, private, community um, spaces and areas and, and multiple jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. So um, it, 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 it's, it's a shared kuleana, and it's going to take a collaborative approach. So one of the significant things about this formal recognition of a group that represents the multiple stakeholders within the Alawai and a formalization of this partnership is now there is a sort of entity or the beginning of an entity that can actually be equipped and empowered to go and solve for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's interesting because, um, you know, they're obviously living on the on islands, multiple watershed, Alawai watershed is not the only watershed. Mm-hmm. Um, it does, however, have particular significance because it's... Uh, the watershed where uh, one of our main economic engines sits, right, Waikiki and that whole area. Um, so in terms of um, available resources, the, the, there's significant challenges in that watershed. There's also significant resources that are available. So how do we look at this? Like, how is those those problems, where where is the solutions that are inherent within the problem itself, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Matt Gonser, I mean, uh, I, I think, uh, Matt Lynch makes a good point in terms of its proximity to Waikiki, economic driver. Certainly it's in the urban area, high population uh, density. So many, many reasons why it would be important to focus on it and put attention to it. But I think, you know, one of the things that's inherent in this mentioning that the make the Alawai awesome being a challenge is that it's sort of shorthand that everyone feels it's just polluted, it's a disaster, Uh, tourists drive into it periodically, there are shopping carts in it. I mean, even when I was a student, it was kind of just the toxic waste joke, you know, butt of jokes. But because you have all of this information, um, can you quantify from a 
a biological standpoint or an ecosystem standpoint about just how much of an outlier the Alawai watershed is in terms of the challenges that it faces versus other watersheds in the state? I cannot. Ah. Uh, but there there is some information provided through our State Department of Health. But the reality is that, that it, it's not really being quantified. Mm. We, we have this sense that it's bad. We don't necessarily know how bad. And, and there's a lot of researchers that are now actually we've been meeting with them because they see an opportunity to really gather some of that information, putting more sensors in, working with the Pacific Islands Ocean Observing System to ensure that that information is publicly available, right? All, all very important to get that information out. But even schools like Iolani, right, they're right building there. their own their own remote-controlled cats that have sensors, and they're collecting data. They have drones that are yeah, they have. The, so the, the inform- I think everyone's realizing that, that, okay, like you mentioned, it's polluted. One thing to start with is we're all polluting it. So, you know, it's important to start on the ground and, and provide some of that recognition that if you're living in the watershed, if you're driving through the watershed, if you're recreating – Maybe not if you're recreating. Uh, if you're in a canoe, you're probably not uh, directly Hopefully polluting not. the watershed. <laughs> yeah, um, but but uh, all those things are contributing, right? So the canal is the end of a end of a system of of pipes, and those pipes are the streams that come out of Makiki, Manoa, and Palolo Valleys. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole area used to be a place for things to settle out. So mm. it was a coastal wetland that was very productive. It had fish ponds, taro loi, rice paddies, etc. As early as the early 1900s, because the canal was only constructed in the 1920s, so I think uh, coming up on sort of a 100-year anniversary <laughs> of the construction of the Alawai Canal, um, there's there's a lot of information that we do have. There's a lot of historical flood information, environmental information, but um, we're really trying to, to to get that all together because there could be a deal on our Department of Land and Natural right. Resources report somewhere that that recommends this. There could be some other community report that that has the engagement and and those that are interested in actually affecting change over here. So um, a lot of that is is trying to gather that and then see where the the shortcomings are because there really are a lot. So we know know it's bad. Uh, I think it's really important to know what's in it, how bad is it, where is it coming from, because then you can have some mindset of, of how to impact or mitigate those mm. contributions. I think it's interesting that you say that we know it's bad, but we need to quantify that and find all that information. I mean, uh, is there less information on that watershed than other watersheds? Maybe we focus more on the remote or the pristine ones, and maybe people have written off the Hawaii watershed previously? No, it's always good to have a reference, so that right. a lot of times you'll have a reference point, and usually that's a more pristine area. But um, there's, there's just challenges in having, again, Department of Health they do monitor, um, but they're limited in their resources. So the university obviously has a role. Um, not only can we um, uh, collect grants to then install these and, and monitor, but we have assets up and down the watershed, including Lion Arboretum, the main UH Manoa campus, Waikiki Aquarium. Um, so we're heavily invested in this watershed, both as a place of employment, education, recreation. Mm-hmm. Now, Matt Lynch, uh, we... Well, we we all know that you know the IUCN took place uh, mm-hmm. a couple of months ago, and and I think the the launch of the Alawai Challenge was made at the IUCN, and the the ask was, hey, students, UH, come up with some ideas to come up with you know ways to reimagine the Alawai. Now, if I'm a student, and let's say I'm an electrical engineer, and I'm I'm interested in sensors, and I wanna you know, I wanna get involved. Uh, as a as a student getting involved with a design challenge, what you know, just hearing you know Matt Gonser, what you have said about all the resources and all the let's say reports that have been written, 
me as a you know electrical engineer, I'm a software. I'm thinking, wow, that's a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm not going to em- mm-hmm. you know embrace all of that. How do I, as a student, get involved in a way that's going to actually result in something that's useful? Yeah, well, thankfully, uh, Matt Gonzer's done a great job of beginning to compile a, a lot of these resources. And so at the alawaichallenge.org website under the resources tab is a great starting point um, to see a lot of the existing um, research and works. And, and it can at least serve as a, a, a starting point to point you into additional mm-hmm. um rabbit holes to pursue, so, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, is that... Well, so so I'm also wondering, are students, are professors getting students to form teams? How is the actual mm. organization of a team project going to manifest itself to get to the point where it's actually a project to present that's to a, the judges? That's a really good question. I'm really interested to see how that happens. <laughs> um, I mean, All based right. on the initial response, um, the, currently you can register your interest. Um, right, but that's website. an indiv- I could go. I can personally yep. go and register my interest. Right? Exactly. But, but how, how does a team actually organically form if there is – what's the catalyst to make that happen? Yeah, you know, I, I based off of uh, – so – we have limited sensory capacity to see that, how exactly are people responding. Mm. Um, though anecdotally, based off of the activity that I have seen, um, is there, the, there's something about LOI and there's something about this notion of could it be this thing that we're proud of mm-hmm. um, that has really captured the imagination um, of almost everybody that we've encountered with it. So, for example, uh, uh, was working with some teachers, some high school teachers in the watershed the other day, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, this is incredible. Like, how can we, it, the barriers to participation are very low, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and intentionally so, because the primary focus of this particular design challenge is to essentially ca- catalyze ideas. We want to see the best and brightest, and we want to see ideas that are thinking in whole systems manner. In, mm-hmm. and that are incorporating and building upon existing assets that we have there. So there's a, a existing um, Army Corps of Engineer proposal that has been in the in the uh, boiler for for a number of years now, um, and uh, essentially it's look it's a sort of flood mitigation type of solution. Um, and as I understand it, the proposal is to essentially build a, a, a wall each side of Alawai Canal. Um, and let's just say that that's. Uh, uh, the response from that, uh, I've heard the word uninspiring <laughs> mm-hmm. to describe that type of an approach. Right. So how do you go beyond that to a more integrative systems thinking that's looking at ecosystem restoration? Right? Are, are students, are they high school students? Are they college students? Or, or can anybody participate? But but Matt Gunther, you had something to say? Yeah, but, I can um, respond to that. But uh, I do want to first say that, that the competition brief will be available because the competition officially starts January 9th. Okay. And it runs through March 17th. And there will be different categories. So there's a university college category. So mm-hmm. any any age spectrum from freshman to PhD candidate. And the, the parameters for forming teams will be um, expanded in that in that brief. It's not it's not yet publicly available. Obviously we can't give all the details, but there are parameters of, of what the challenge is. So you know, there's different things that we've alluded to, like flood mitigation or mm-hmm. water quality improvements. So the, the reality of, of some of this holistic systems thinking is, and I think the way that the university has really been engaging in cross-disciplinary education, 
is that we hope that faculty and students are inspired. And though not required, we really encourage um, interdepartmental teams. So if you are an electrical engineer hooking up with a civil engineer or they're finding a natural resource management student and the like. Mm -hmm. Well, Oh, go ahead. As I said, uh, it's also not limited to simply college students as well. That's exactly what I was going to ask. Right. (laughs) But still, you have to be a student. As long as you you are a student. You can't be a professional working in, you know, Hawaiian Electric or something. Correct. Okay. Correct. You you could be, though, I mean, right now there's sort of four categories. Um, uh, There's college then there's high school, middle school, and then primary. Mm-hmm. So um, in talking with one of our colleagues that helped us to develop this challenge and actually facilitated two design hack sessions during IUCN that were related to this, um, he had run a similar one for youth at Facebook trying to solve some of their compelling challenges. Right, right. And it was like a group of third graders that won it oh. because they're unconstrained by, you know. Right, <laughs> the, any limitations. Exactly, yeah. the mental constraints that, you know, those of us <laughs> have, have, are a little older, yeah. right, have, have sort of... Uh, are unconsciously constrained by set in our ways exactly so um, again like this the idea here is with a little bit of resources catalyze and really showcase the type of creativity and integrated solutions that are available that are out there I like that it's a student design challenge. One thing that occurs to me is that there are a lot of charter schools or independent schools, um, and especially in the urban Honolulu area. Are they uh, part of your the net that you're casting for this challenge? Yeah, absolutely. And and it shows like this, or we've gotten some additional uh, star advertiser um, um, promotion, coverage, yeah. yeah, coverage, uh, and and the the almost daily updates of people registering their interests has been very promising. Mm-hmm. Strong local interest, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a DOE email address or one of those other schools' email address. And I, I would just like to say, too, that, that for the how and the why of a team coming together, there's an incentive. There's prize money. Okay. That's always that's always an incentive. Tell, well, tell, tell me. Show me the money. How does that work? <laughs> so, <there's, laughs> um, uh, so, again, from the UH president's budget, because he feels so passionate about this, um, he committed $10,000 of his own money um, to seed this. Um, so there's $10,000 in prize money that will be up for grabs across those four sort of broad categories. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of uh, your outreach, right, right now kind of is the period to get out there and spread the word and talk to whether it's uh, college professors or high school teachers. Uh, what sort of outreach are you doing? Are you on an active sort of routine of, of getting together with some of the schools and, and finding out you know, if they're interested in participating? Uh, it's a lot of word of mouth and sort of snowballing and asking people to assist us mm-hmm. in getting the word out. Again, the coverage that has been provided really immediately following the IUCN and, mm-hmm. and President Lassner's announcement was was very important. Um, obviously, we can track sort of visits to the website, so that's that's all well and good. Uh, but we're going to start to need we're going to need to start to reach out far afield to ensure that it is a national, as diverse, and interna- yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what I want to uh, when we get back after the break, I want to talk a little bit about the actual um, the challenge. I mean, if there is anything that you can sort of disclose about what the challenge might be and what resources might be available to you know meet that challenge. Want to hold that thought? We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with both Matt Lynch and Matt Gonser about the Make the Alawai Awesome Challenge. You can share your ideas as well by calling 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Winter is coming. Let the lively fiddle, flutes, percussion and voices of Hawaii's premier Irish band Celtic Waves brighten the season. Their concert to celebrate the winter solstice happens in the Atherton, December 10th, 7.30pm. 
Reserve your seats now at hprtickets.org or at 955-8821 during business hours. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership. Wealth Management. The EPA released a report last year looking at how fracking affects drinking water and pollution. Not so much, the study said. I would highly doubt that the uh, groundwater scientists who were involved in a technical sense wrote that statement. I'm Kai Rizdal. How an EPA study's results were changed at the last minute to downplay the risks. The story next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, right after Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Straub Clinic and Hospital. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Matt Lynch and Matt Godzer about how imagination and innovation can shape the future of the Alawai. And, of course, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to give us a call. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Right before the break, we were sort of talking about the teams and students getting involved and perhaps coming up with some great ideas. I'm curious, you know, there is sort of on the books the Corps of, uh, Army Corps of Engineers. They have some proposals of, about building a wall. Um, in your in your sort of imagination, what would what would students you know be able to tap into from a from a besides their imagination to help come up I with guess, solutions? Yeah, come up with reimagining what the Ottawa might be. I think it's. I mean, for me, it always starts with identifying what those challenges are, and again, they'll be um, further provided in the brief when they're out there. But there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that people know today, right? So we know that we're vulnerable to rainfall and coastal flooding. We talked about non-point source pollution, so that's that's water flowing over impervious and compacted earth and collecting things as it's going into the streams and out to the canal and out to the ocean. Um, obviously, sea level rise and coastal erosion, particularly in the Waikiki area, um, things like aging infrastructure, which could be a tech a tech solution if there's other innovations that are happening out there. Um, so maybe that's a little bit of a primer. Um, mm, okay, also, okay. Uh, secret uh, hints there. <laughs> Thinking yeah. at the top of the watershed, problems with invasive species mm-hmm. and what that does to the um, health of the, the streams and the watershed system up there, and then how that sort of snowball effect. As Remind you me again, where would we say the top of that watershed is? So it, it, it might be helpful to think of in terms of UH assets. So Lion Arboretum at the top, right, of the watershed. Ah, okay, okay. Lion Arboretum being surrounded by invasive albizia uh, trees um, that grow so rapidly um, and are so brittle. Um, that, you know, in a flood or sorry, rather in a storm event, they'll come down and then have the potential to clog waterways and cause flooding, um, sort of secondary hazard from the initial hazard of it falling, right. but also shade out the understory such that uh, there's no vegetation that is able to keep the stream banks intact, right? So that you essentially have a situation where you are getting increasing uh, channelization mm-hmm. all the way up and down, right? right? And, and the, the function um, to filter, right, and to settle and to solarize and all those things that happens as water makes its way naturally down from the top of watershed to the ocean, as that's impaired, right, um, the further down the watershed you get. It's like, a, a, it's like this um, um, 
snowball of a problem right, right. that just exacerbates it every step of the and way. And I think it's and helpful. Right. It is helpful not to only focus, although it's easy to focus on the canal that you see there mm-hmm. along the Alawai Golf Course. But we're, it is a much bigger picture that we're looking. Yeah, for. I was just gonna if to help us visualize upper watershed, we can basically just think of where the tree lines are and where the homes stop. Really, that interface, anything that's more towards the mountains would be the upper watershed. And within this about 19 square miles of what we're calling the Alawai Watershed, um, just under half of that is actually in the state conservation land district, and the rest of that is in the urban land district. So you even have some of that that uh, agency difference there. Mm-hmm. So you you brought up a couple of, of suggestions right now. I mean, let's say you, you bring up Albizia. Albizia is a problem. Why don't we get rid of the Albizia? What if somebody come up with, came up with a project? Let's let's eradicate Albizia. Is that realistic? And is that something that could be even you know even implemented? Okay, another question. <laughs> I've got a bunch of them. So another. We don't one, have to answer these. Right, right. No, no, no. Well, one know, at a time. <laughs> so another thing that we always hear about is during a during a let's say a heavy rain, the sewer uh, gets overflowed, and where does it all dump into? It dumps into the Alawai, right? So maybe another possible solution is: mm. can we somehow manage that? You know, um, let me have a crack at this first, Matt, and I'll ask sure. you to chime in. Which you going to start? Are you going to start with Albizia or are you going to start with the sewer? I'm actually <laughs> going to, so um, related to both of those, okay. right, is w- we've been working to try to solve the challenge with invasive species for uh, generations now, right? right? Um, and underpinning all of that is how do we resource this? If you look at the type of funding that DLNR has mm-hmm. to be able to manage what their responsibility is, um, it comes out to like a dollar an acre or, mm-hmm. or less. It's, it's, it's really quite stark, right? Mm-hmm. So what is required is innovative funding mechanisms, right? And so if you don't, for example, have a formally recognized partnership, how can you then create a specially tailored financing vehicle to help address that? Right, and to be able to work across those sectors and silos. Similarly, um, if you look at, for example, stormwater issues, right? Um, so there has been work underway to establish a stormwater utility so that there are revenue streams and innovative funding mechanisms to be able to support that, right? If you, if you are, if something first has to be quantified and valued, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that you can then start to work backwards and design your solutions towards mm-hmm. that end. Well, you know, I, I I appreciate also your caution in you know saying too much about the challenge because it is it is it is an ex, it is a process for students to go through. There is prize money, and it's going to be f- announced in full. But uh, I'm really trying to envision what kinds of things someone might propose. So maybe piggybacking on Bert's question, you mentioned earlier that there was a lack of imagination in the building a wall to protect it from flooding because it's well, it's a wall. Um, but on the other hand, that proposal probably came with funding, and you know it, it would happen because people would pay to build it. Uh, when someone is coming up with a, a possible solution, whether it's for the invasive species or for floodwaters, um, are you, there going to be constraints on what a student could propose in terms of what would also reasonably be funded? That's a great question. Um, two parts to that. One, uh, we, we, the constraints for this is 
the extent of your imagination. All right, all right. Right? Um, so we could build a space elevator <laughs> and just put all of the things that we don't like on it and shoot it into space. Sure. We'll see how the judges respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, would say, uh, I would think that we're, what will be most inspiring and inspirational and useful to us are things that are actually grounded in the physical constraints of the, of the space. Mm-hmm. Um, and thought given to what these innovative financing mechanisms might be is obviously something that is needed and would be welcomed. Um, and there was another point that you had brought up just before that that I well, like you know the to to protect the area from flooding and and just yes construct the wall. Right, you're talking about walls. So I, I think it, you bring up an important point here. It's important that we don't just throw out a solution that we don't like at first glance because it's whatever. We don't like it's walls ugly. or whatever. They, right, exactly. Well, walls are kind of a sensitive issue. They right? are right now. Yeah, I understand. Well, well both ends. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the uh, point being is, look, it's going to take an enormous amount of capital to build and, and design and implement that solution. And maybe we don't like everything about that solution. However, can we build from that existing resource base that that brings to the table and come up with a more imaginative, more integrative, more holistic way of solving this integrated and complex challenge, right? Well, let me think of something that popped into my head. Let's say that um, you wanted to protect it from flooding, so there is infrastructure that would be built, but working with designers and people and planners, it could also be a boardwalk or a a sustainability tour or, you know, incorporate the visitor experience into it so that it's not just a thing it you know it's it can become part of a larger conversation what if it was a feature you know so right, there, right. there were do, when the design challenge was launched during IUCN we hosted a design hack within so that we could um, engage and seek to learn from the international expertise that was within the room mm-hmm. uh, starting with a tour of the Alawai canal and a briefing on the broader Alawai watershed that Sea Grant Matt Gonser and some of his colleagues helped to host and then we did a second design hack that had people from the city, had some students, had people that are working in and around issues of water quality, professionals from here. And some of the ideas that came up with range, we've talked about some of those already, innovative financing mechanisms, alternative um, sort of use of the hotel tax, maybe an additional, um, an alloy fund that's funded through visitor mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. revenues somehow. Um, or what about a, uh, um, a floodgate that actually raises and lowers like they have in, in Rotterdam, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've also had things like uh, suggestions to build a river walk from Malka to Mackay along Manoa Stream so that you can start to daylight areas of it and then we can start to think about instead of the Alawai and all of these, the other pipelines you know, upstream of it that, that empty into it, um, instead of those being things that we cover away and try to ignore until it becomes a problem, what if we flip that on its head and thought about ways that this might actually drive some type of, God forbid, economic development, right, mm. that is actually tied to ecosystem restoration and gives people a unique experience of the fact that the reason why you have such pristine beaches <laughs> that we can enjoy that drives all this tourism is because of what's happening upstream of it, Right. So, um, so you can ch- – a uh, uh, Hawaii Green Growth Facebook page, um, we actually posted up some of those initially. That links – you can get a link to that from the resources section of the mm-hmm. org website. And you can start to see some of the ideas that have already come up um, as a sort of starting point, if you will, um, towards uh, even um, deeper or, you know, more imaginative thought around this type well, of – Well, so you've brought up at least a half a dozen great ideas and – 
And I, I'm not sure what the judges, how the judges are going to be sort of selected and, and uh, uh, given, say, criteria to, to determine what to choose. So, so Matt Gonser, I mean, as this project starts to take on the, the official timelines that are coming up in, in January, um, I'm, I'm curious to hear about the process by which you might start to select any of these projects. Uh, by select, you mean select as or, winners or, for the competition? Exactly. Or, I mean, what, what, is the, what is the output of the competition? Is it selection of uh, one project or is it selection of a multitude of projects? And then, and then later on, I'd, li- I'd like to hear what your ideas and thoughts are on how do you bring that all together and start to actually implement something. Yeah, so the selection process, as you know, not all the information is out yet, but it will be finalized. We we mentioned or alluded to those four different categories, and some of it might be dependent on numbers of submissions. But we're sort of shifting towards you know a first prize per category, perhaps a People's Choice Award, where mm-hmm. we can do additional engagement um, and and allow some of that social interaction over other media. Um, the, the judges will have the final say. I've, Matt's provided a lot of his opinions. I have a fair amount of opinions <laughs> out there as well. Um, but the judges do have the final say. And mm-hmm. we hope to then have some form of exhibition of, of these resources. So we'll do perhaps social media push, but then also physically here print out a lot of the things. And, and again, the parameters will be clearer once the brief is out there. But we do want to ensure that you're comparing sort of apples to apples and you're, you're not judging a... A, a video production versus a haiku narrative, right. you know. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Shucks, a lot I was going to submit a haiku. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of that information will, will become clear, obviously, and um, unfortunately we can't provide all of that information today. I see. Well, yeah. I mean, and this is something that Bird is currently working with in terms of the hackathon with the state where you have a brilliant idea, someone ready to build it, a client ready to use it, but getting the idea to implementation mm-hmm. is also a significant challenge. So let's say someone comes up Using their imagination and no constraints because they're young and brilliant, found a way that you that could effectively uh, uh, get rid of albizia trees at that specific watershed through some solution that was unique to it. Um, what would it take then, or where would the motivation come to make it a reality after that? We'll come back uh, on your show and talk about that <laughs> in ju- no. Uh, I mean, <laughs> logic Kickstarter. Great, okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the reality is like this. This is prize money. Um, it's a small pot to to really entice that kind of engagement. But there's no clear pathway for implementation of ideas that we don't know what they will be yet. Obviously, um, but people will have the ability through the website and the resources that we're populating to tap into all the past knowledge. Um, there's going to be. We're not providing any base materials. We're going to be directing people to either the state's GIS software, mm-hmm. all the open data portals. There, open data. Oh yeah. yeah, open data. I know <laughs> you guys are into that. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, as well as other sort of sustainability goals, whether it's the Aloha Plus Challenge uh, dashboard, and, oh, right. and, and and or other dashboards that are out there. Um, and certainly if there's a will it win, winning idea from a third grader that just blows everyone's mind um, because it could be effective and cost effective, uh, there would be hopefully assistance in the community to, to make that a reality, whether it's through legislation or funding of some other firm. Yeah, I mean, that ha- that has to be, Matt used the word catalyst or catalyzed right, quite right. a bit. That That's where we'll have to wait and see, I mm-hmm. think, because it, it could ignite this just groundswell of public support for change, change in Hawaii. 
Well, um, I, I think the groundswell is there. I mean, Alawai, we've all grown up here. We all kind of seen the, the you know the the effects of a polluted Alawai, and we would all love to see it become pristine. Are you thinking of any follow up to the design challenge in subsequent? Years, perhaps? Yeah, so $10,000 in the scheme of things and the scheme of the complexity and scale, not a lot. Um, this type of an approach, though, to solve the, the problems of this scale and complexity has been shown to work in other areas. We just don't have proof of concept locally in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So part of our thinking behind this is to give people a safe place to experience how a sort of crowd uh, crowdsourced design approach um, can elicit really creative ideas. Um, what uh, from the research that we've done, um, in order to launch a sort of large-scale type of international design challenge that would attract large A&E firms and large financing firms that have experience with large-scale resilient green infrastructure projects, um, would require a price purse of about $100,000 or so. And then a supporting budget to actually run mm-hmm. the competition because you mm-hmm. would need, instead of a design brief um, that, you know, two clowns from UH are <laughs> sort of <laughs> hacking away at, uh, one clown at least, Matt's not a clown. Yeah. No, um, not at all. Not very funny. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this would be more like an RFP caliber, Got it, right? right? That you are actually developing to meet specific targeted outcomes towards this area. Um, and the supporting budget for a $100,000 international design con- competition would be somewhere between three to 500000 and would likely take, pl- would take about three years to wow. design, implement, and execute. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are examples of this type of approach that has been successful in other places. So what does a perfect end result look like in my mind for, as a result of this? That this catalyzes the thought from the people that have the resources and ability to make those decisions. Of, huh, what if we were able to do this, you know, at scale? Yeah, right, at scale. a bigger scale. Right. 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 Well, again, we appreciate you sharing this challenge as the things are still coming together in terms of the, the rules and the criteria and everything. I'm glad people are signing up, but it's still early. So from where we are now, where can someone go to express their interest? And remind us again what the calendar is for this challenge. Sure. So... Um, January 9th, 2017, the design challenge officially opens. The design brief will be um, available for download then, and everybody that has signed up to register their interest will get a notification as well. Um, then we will shift to a registration period from January 9th to January 31st. You can register your intent to submit so that we have an idea of how many submissions we can expect. Free to participate. Exactly. Sounds good. And then March 17th, design entries close. And then between March and the last week of June um, is our opportunity to uh, exhibit the design entries at various locations. And then we'll announce the winners at the World Youth Congress 2017 at UH Manoa. Very good. Fantastic. And that'll be at org. Well, Matt Lynch is the Sustainability Coordinator at the University of Hawaii. And, of course, Matt Gonzer is with UHC Grant Extension. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you both. Thanks so much. Thanks, Matt. And thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll meld the ancient with modern technology and talk about the Polynesian Voyaging Society and underwater robotics. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And, of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. You can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich. And, of course, we'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.